we're at the point now where in order to understand how the universe works, you kind of need God. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mind Matters. On today's show, we are going to be tying up some of the loose ends left over from previous shows on subjects like intelligent design, mysticism, process, philosophy, and really trying to get into the implications of the ideas that we're speaking, implications for you know, modern life, our ethics, morality, um, and also on the role of science and religion in, in everyday life, and how we've really been led to adopt false beliefs on the nature of science, the role that it plays in our life, as well as the role that uh, religion plays in our life. Um, Beliefs that we've been beat over the head with for numerous generations, such as the idea that uh, science is incompatible with religion and that science has proven that there is no such thing as God and that uh, religion is just a bunch of fairy tales. Because uh, we know now that when science has started to approach these subjects, uh, far from disproving the idea of God or the idea of intelligence in the universe that is uh, that transcends human intelligence, um, far from disproving it, it actually uh, makes it a very suggestive uh, hypothesis, um, one that is in becoming increasingly difficult uh, to deny. And that goes back to this idea of uh, false dualities that Bernardo Castro brings up in his book, The Idea of the World. Um, the idea that science and religion are somehow binary opposites, uh, like life and death, or on and off. Uh, when in reality, these binary opposites, like life and death, or on and off, they, in one state, it's going to tell you uh, something about the other state. So if you see me now, you know that I'm not dead. And if you turn on the lights, you know that it's not off. Now, in the case of science and religion, um, it's clear that knowing something about one doesn't tell you immediately something about the other. You don't know that since I believe in some scientific theory, uh, or if I believe in science or believe it has value, that it means that I'm not a religious person. Um, so it's just a, a categorical issue, a thinking error, and a false belief uh, because as we have come to discuss on the show uh, with uh, numerous individuals, there is a burgeoning uh, worldview that is, uh, that is developing that incorporates some, of, some ancient beliefs in God and the traditions of, of uh, numerous religions into a modern scientific and uh, systemic uh, system, a uh, system of information and of energy, uh, and they're not uh, incompatible whatsoever. So today we're going to talk about some of the implications of this, the implications that this has for how we structure our lives and what is the, what is the kind of a God that is coming out, uh, what is the, the temperament of this, of a potential God or creator that designed this universe, what role do we play as individuals in, an inf in a universe built with information and with energy, all moving seemingly in some grand designed pattern, but with freedom so that we can even deny that there is a creator or that there is meaning 
behind our everyday experiences and what are the implications of this um that's what we're going to be talking about today guys you have any thoughts well i wanted to say something on the conflict between science and religion and to take off on that introduction that you had about it because as you say in these talks that we've been having in the interviews we've been kind of developing a worldview where there's a lot of things possible that uh the scientific worldview doesn't allow as being possible just writes them off as being impossible but that doesn't mean that there's that there's still or that there isn't some conflict or that there won't still be some conflict between certain worldviews like broadly like religious and, and broadly scientific i think that uh if anything when we look at the worldview that that uh you know we're forming from all of these different sources it's that the it's kind of a on the one hand it's a general it's got several general characteristics and um, features about it. And the more specific you make any kind of claims, like if you zero in, zero in on all the specific religions to, to very like highly precise specific claims, I think the more specific you are, the more likely you, the more likely you are to have contradictions between the various systems, right? So every religion as it is can't be literally true because they are, there are contradictory aspects of them. And you can see this played out in the conflicts that <clears throat> that real people have had over the centuries and still do have about the subtleties and niceties of religious dogma, even within a certain tradition, like the the inter inter Christian or inter um, Islamic um, conflicts and you know battles that that are waged. So there are probably a set of religious claims, broadly speaking, that. Um, can be falsified or that may not be true in a literal sense um, and as a lot of believers like believe them and so basically there is the way I see it as we're forming this worldview there are some principles from the scientific worldview that can be applied to religions and religion in general that don't necessarily impinge on the essence of religion but that may strongly contradict some of like you know some religions central claims like like uh um if you read through like the the catholic catechism or something i'm sure there there are some some things that might be um assailable or you know that you could argue against and may not be literally true but the the flip side of that is that uh, the religious you know the so-called religious worldview can have something to say about science too and the world in which science works and um and does its thing because a scientific worldview is kind of like a, a slice of reality that ignores and can't account for um the whole rest of the pie of of reality there there are aspects of experience that cannot be and haven't been accounted for and explained in the terms of let's say particle physics because there are some extremists who think that everything is reducible to the you know the interactions of subatomic particles and to anyone who well the only people that can believe that can only believe that while they're writing those papers and for the rest of their lives you know as they're interacting with their family members it's completely irrelevant and they demonstrate through their actions that they don't actually believe it because if you lived your life as if you were a a collection of subatomic particles you wouldn't actually do anything you wouldn't think anything you wouldn't have goals or anything like that you'd be a pretty boring person um well you'd be essentially you know essentially a proton or a neutron you'd be a neutron totally neutral you know not doing very much at all um you wouldn't have you, you might you might have the excitement of the electron you know as we were 
speaking with, uh, was it Ken Peterson or no, with uh, John Buchanan. But uh, it's just a, it's a ridiculous worldview to have to think that everything can be explained in terms of subatomic processes because as Ken Peterson was pointing out is that at every level there is some kind of new phenomenon. There's a new set of rules and you can't explain that set of rules in terms of the, the set of rules below it. Now, the, the set of, of rules below it allows for that new set of rules, but it doesn't account for them. Just like the rules of chemistry um, allow for the functions in your cells, allow for DNA and DNA transcript, RNA transcription and all these processes that go on in your cells. But just looking at the, the laws of chemistry, the rules of chemistry themselves, there's nothing inherent in them that implies they will necessarily lead to you know, the emergence of life like that. There's an unbridgeable gap between ordinary... Um, kind of like you could call it random or natural chemistry and the kind of directed and organized chemistry that you see going on in every cell and you know doing these unbelievably complex actions and processes 100% of the time and relatively flawlessly when you think about how how long um, life forms live and how everything seems to work generally pretty well it's like we're not uh, we're not constantly just dissolving into into mush because you know things aren't coordinated even in a, an unhealthy body things are going well enough that if you look at people who are sick they're able to you know there there's a period of sickness it's not like your entire body just disintegrates there's some some kind of stability in um like amazing stability in the way our bodies operate so we have a uh, a religious worldview in which we can place now um, the the kind of scientific aspects because the, the the things that science analyzes like I said are a small subset of reality and then you have this other subset of reality that is account that part of which not all of which is accounted for the kind of traditional world religious worldviews and then you've got all the the weird stuff that at one time or another has been like rejected by both camps like if you if you take mainstream Christian um, theology or just the mainstream Christian worldview, there's not a lot of attention placed on uh, psi phenomena, for instance. And then if you look at the scientific worldview, there's not much attention at all placed on psi phenomena. Psi phenomena. They both reject them for different reasons, sometimes for the same reasons. But there are there are these aspects, these kind of like border areas where where that don't quite fit in either of the mainstreams. And then there's all kinds of, of course, there's all kinds of philosophical and spiritual ideas and beliefs that don't fit in any kind of mainstream religious framework. So right on the right at the outset there I guess what I, the the main point I want to make about that is that we can adopt a so-called scientific attitude towards religious um religious phenomena and not lose out on what we might consider the essence of those phenomena. So, uh, you know, I haven't come up with, with a list of what I might think those would be. I'm sure David Ray Griffin has, but uh, in one of his one of his books that I've read. But you know, one might be so the, so the existence and reality of higher beings, whether it be one supreme mm -hmm. entity or more individualized, you know, a, a plenitude or a multitude of beings like angels or archangels, you know, traditionally called or demons or jinn or whatever. So that might be one, and then there's there's also the kind of there's an there's a there's a an implication or a um, something that is entailed by by those beliefs, and that would be a kind of non sensory per perception, 
because in order to contact and have some kind of connection with a being of that sort, if the religion, religious worldview accounts for like a personal connection with, with beings of that sort, then there must be some kind of non-physical, non-sensory perception by which this connection is, um, is done. And so that then leads, leads into thinking about the kinds of philosophies that we've been discussing, like process philosophy and, and like a first sight theory that in a scientific way kind of tries to describe and account for what that is, how it works and how it fits into um, both a religious and a, and a scientific framework. So there's all these, even though there are, there are these contradictions in let's say method and content, there are these overlaps that kind of, can um, can teach each side or you know round out each side of the equation. So a sci- so a scientific a scientific worldview and well a scientific like method and framework applied to religion can weed out a lot of nonsense. And you see a lot of this when you look at um, like biblical criticism and the, like the the analysis of Old and New Testament texts, where it's where you look at it critically and you can come to certain conclusions and say, okay, well I, I probably can't believe that because this is clearly nonsense. You know, this actually didn't happen. Maybe it was written for a purpose. Maybe we can try to divine the, the purpose as we do with literature, but we can say, well, no, that's not true. Well, right? l- let me interrupt you, Harrison, because uh, you said quite a bit there, and there's a lot that uh, that we can unpack uh, from that bit and from Corey's intro. The first thing, Corey, you said in your introduction, you know, that the that intelligent design implies the infusion um, of energy and information. And there is, I think, once one has come to at least a, a, a basic acknowledgement of intelligent design's uh, influence over the creation of biological beings and environments, and in fact, uh, its power to have, um, to have created things on a much more macro or cosmic level, then implicit in that, I think, is the uh, awareness of the idea that, that information as a almost non-physical um, substance, for lack of a better word, uh, ideas, uh, knowledge of, of how things work, that there's an interface between the physical and the non-physical in this universe, that that gets bridged, that gets informed, for lack of a better word, with information. Um, there's a formation of, of structures, of cells, of DNA, of uh, subatomic pro- particles, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago in our interview with Ken Peterson. All of this comes from a place uh, or a a knowledge base or a higher intelligence that has seen fit to bring pieces together in a certain way. And once we've gotten this under our belts, so to speak, I think that what it allows for is an opening to a whole other range of information. Harrison, you brought up, uh, Psi abilities and an understanding of certain phenomena that might be uh, described in religious texts. Uh, scientists like Rupert Sheldrake have have pointed to all kinds of uh, phenomena and things that were observed that 
point directly to uh, a a non physical uh, reality, and and so to me, one of the implications of intelligent design in particular is that it's freeing. It allows it allows scientists. It allow it allows. Uh, people who are religious of a scientific bent. It allows philosophers to open up whole vistas of of inquiry, of um, of real science and real understanding that's based on more objective truths. Now, b- before our show, we had a little bit of a discussion on all this, and I and I thought that one of the kind of best things that was said, I don't know if it was you, Corey, or you, Adam, was that we're working towards a, a kind of science of truth. Uh, and, and once we can, once we have this objective truth that everything is information, that everything is, uh, everything is, can be seen uh, from, a, from a greater distance back, that there are less accidents uh, less random mutations that go into the forming of things than than the neo Darwinists would have us believe. Once we've really understood this, then then we can apply um, and allow ourselves to to pursue a whole other area of non physical uh, awareness. It doesn't mean that we we'll run away. With, with ourselves and our thoughts in, in these certain directions, we can still be very rigorous. But at least from there, we have, you know, we have the veil lifted from our eyes. We can begin to be open to the idea of a hierarchy of intelligence, as you were saying, Harrison. This is very important because if, if you are a materialist, if you are a neo-Darwinist, then there is no, there is no purpose for prayer. There is no humility uh, that one can bring oneself to in order to ask or in order to be open to uh, non-physical intelligence, in order to be a, um, in order to be able to receive in the way that an Ibn uh, Arabi would would say, or a, or a Gurdjieff with his exercises. Uh, so these are whole um, whole areas of knowledge and awareness and perhaps inspiration uh, and information that, that we get to uh, at least allow ourselves to explore having unblocked our minds with materialism. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are all really good points. Uh, and I think that, you know, that it makes me think of um, the choice. I mean, you have, we have this choice, right? That you can be a materialist or a Darwinist. Right, you can be completely materialistic. It's a it's a problem that will never never be solved, and there's something really really important behind that. I think that you'll, you know, even though I mean, a little bit of the reason to bring up you know the the whole dichotomy between science and religion was because, um, you know, it's it's tough to get to the implications of intelligent design when you're carrying uh, the the excess baggage of generations of people who who you just, you know, you've, you've got the, the baggage from the, your traditionalist camp that, you know, God is either this moralist busybody or he's the upholder of the status quo, or he's, he's just the source of power for the powerful. He's, 
he's any one of these numerous things that is, you know, very tribal, uh, tribalistic and very narrow, uh, myopic kind of God that is jealous and he's, he's angry um, and he, he needs you to, to believe in him. And, you know, that it's, uh, it, you have that, right? That's in the background. So you think, oh, intelligent design, oh, it's him. They're going to, you know, that's what somebody's going to say is, oh, it's this, it's that guy. That's what, so you, what you're really saying is that, that, that God, when you say God, that's the God you're talking about. It's like, no, um, what we're talking about is, is real science, which is simply the pursuit of everything, how it works and just as it is, you know, it's not, it, you're not, I mean, science as it is today, isn't that obviously we know that isn't that, and that's why, you know, you, you make um, uh, differentiations between the scientific worldview and scientism and science as it was originally intended, which was just basically a restrained method for making educated guesses, testing them, making refining what you saw based on mathematics and higher order thinking in order to generalize into these intermediate laws that then could ultimately be generalized into ultimate laws so that you could understand how the entire universe works. Well, guess what? We're at the point now where in order to understand how the universe works, you kind of need God. You kind of need some form of God, but the God that we're seeing right now doesn't seem to care if all of you are materialistic swine, <laughs> you know, not to say all materialists are swine, but he doesn't care if you're a materialistic swine either. He doesn't seem to really be that big of a moral busybody. It's, there's an important component there uh, that seems to be that one of the biggest things in this universe that we live in is that you're free to choose. That's, that is a, uh, that's really interesting right there because that choice right there opens up to me in my mind there's at least two paths that stem from that choice and you see that in the universe from what we see from the very lowest levels of you know subatomic particles and information everything is computing information and things at like the lowest levels aren't necessarily very free right so they don't have a lot of free will but as you move up, you have more um, freedom, less limitation. Uh, into animals, you have different ways of expressing, you know, a range of emotions and a range of behavioral features and a, a range of different relationships. Until you know, you get to human beings, and we have the freedom to deny all of that completely. We don't have to um, pursue the learning process or the computing process, or we don't on a conscious level, we're free to choose not to do that. Whereas if, you know, subatomic particles were free to do that, to choose not to do that, I don't know if we would have a universe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we would probably still be in that, in that whatever pre-chaotic state. Um, but so that freedom to choose seems to be uh, an, like something that you cannot violate that God, if this, well, so, and when I say God, okay, so I, we named the different kinds of gods, um, that we, that put, uh, we've believed in for the last, you know, a couple thousand years or yeah. so. God is like this absolute passionless, 
you know, figure that just is somewhere out there and you, nothing you do really does anything for God. He's just, he created the universe and whatever. He doesn't really care. Um, and then, you know, the moral busybody and then the, the tyrants and then the upholder of the status quo. It's like all of those conceptions seem to be wrong because empirically, if you look at um, intelligent design and what it seems to do, it, it seems to be that um, it's a very active process the the material world itself even isn't dead it's it's not a dead thing that just got fashioned like um you know clay quote unquote and then is now we can walk on it um it's it's rather a very constant engaged creative process of information transfer that leads up to the level where we're at where we seem to be able to choose whether or not we actually want to continue that and so then at that point, it seems to be that there's at least two paths that you can go to, either, you know, Shakespeare to be or not to be. And I think that that plays itself out quite a bit in numerous different ways in our lives. And I think that that right there is kind of the foundation for a, you know, a more, mm, I don't want to say scientific, but um, a, a religious kind of worldview that is rooted in science and that takes away all of the the trappings of like God and, and that that have come down to us, and um, you can start, like you said, Harrison, start to take a scientific attitude towards the universe and towards religion, and start to see like, well, you know, if God isn't so far away, um, if as in process uh, philosophy. God is a very much an integral part of every conscious experience. And that um, just as like Francis Bacon said, that the, the divine mind is really like a big mover and shaker in the universe mm -hmm. that we're not, um, we're not that far from God. Mm -hmm. We are part and parcel of God and that our choices and our experience and then how we live our lives kind of reflect what we, our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Like Ibn Arabi said, God is closer to you than the jugular than the than the jugular vein than the jugular vein. <laughs> yeah. That's a. <laughs> um, there there are two points I want to try to make. They're still kind of crystallizing in my mind, so I'm going to try to work through them. I want to go off on a couple of things. Just brief references you made. One was just about belief in God, and how one of these images, one of these traditions we have had about God. Um, you know, however conceived was it, he requires belief in him. And I think from a certain perspective, that is kind of a, an, abs an absurd notion that uh, isn't really um, compatible with the worldview that we've been developing. But from, a, from another perspective, a more kind of elusive or um, kind of roundabout way, I it kind of makes sense. Because what I was thinking about was something that we were talking about just earlier um, in regard to psi phenomena. One of the interesting things that that um, James Carpenter points out, and this is just this is kind of a um, a well known fact in the the parapsychological research, is that if you believe psi is possible, chances are better that you'll perform better at at you know at doing these these uh, at you'll perform better in these experiments that are set up. And if you have a strong belief that it's not possible, you might actually show a below chance um, response in these tests. So in other words, you'll guess wrong more times than you should by chance. So you're actually still demonstrating a, 
a psi effect, so to speak, but just in the opposite direction. So there seems to be something about there's something about belief that is integrally integrally tied to all this. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that if you believe that you know your dog is a cat, then for you your dog is a cat. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm what, what I I'm trying to say, probably more closely, is that there are certain inherent possibilities or realities in the in the cosmos in reality that if you are aware of them and see them as real possibilities they become uh they become real for you they become real possibilities as opposed to just distant possibilities like if you never conceive of yourself as having a as learning a particular skill or or uh, or subject or whatever then you'll never do it. Whereas if you say, oh, well, you know, I could learn quantum physics, then that's kind of the first step in actually cracking open the first book or taking your first course and actually learning it. That dynamic seems to be at play in the universe in ways that are way weirder and more interesting, frankly, than that, you know, simplistic example. So with the example of Psy, when you're aware of the possibility of it, when you when you see, oh wow, maybe this is the world—the way the world is actually structured. Maybe this is as this is something integral about the nature of consciousness. Then all of a sudden, that kind of unlocks that latent potential within you that allows it to express itself. And it seems like that is that dynamic, <clears throat> that feature of the the way the universe is structured is somehow intimately tied to the nature of choice as you were describing it, Corey. Because I'm going to tie this into information theory as we described it in our talk with Ken Peterson. Just a quick background on how I how I described information in that show was that um, as like Will Bill Dembski describes it and others, it's information is really the reduction of uncertainty. So when you when you when you take a, a, like a vast unknown and reduce it to something that becomes more and more certain. The more certain it is, the more information it is. So if you have something and you can't say anything specific about it, you, you've got zero information about it. But you can say, oh, if it's, it's this, not that, that's your first bit of information. And the more times you can do that, the more ways in which you can do that, the more you zero in on what that thing is, then, that, then you have more information about it. So you can say, oh, either it's raining or it's not raining. Oh, where though? Oh, it's not raining in Africa, but it is raining in North America. Well, where specifically those are big, like, you know, big um, continents and land masses. So the more you zero in on it, okay, it's raining in North America, in the state of North Carolina, in the city of Raleigh, on this street, you know, right now, the, the more you zero in, the more information you have, the more specific it gets. The less information you have, the more vague it is and, and the, the, you know, the more unspecific it is. And that is... That is a way of describing information at all levels. So when we were talking about subatomic particles, you know, there are specific features about subatomic particles that you can that you can describe in various digital ways. It's on or off. You know, you can have certain certain um, digits to describe spin or you know mass or velocity or whatever at, at all of these at all um, all of these features of the subatomic world up through you know the macroscopic world. You have specific features, specific uh, yeah, specific features, characteristics that can be that can be taken by any given object, 
And at those low levels that it's expressed digitally, like Ken Peterson was showing, it's a very limited number of options that describe the possibilities. And that we can apply that dynamics also to humans. So for molecules, for atoms, they have a, a limited number of options. Like you were saying, Corey, they have a limited amount of free will. They can't choose much. They can't do much because their options are so limited. You know, like when you have an atom, it's pretty much, and it, you know, it's receiving a proton. It's got a few options. Oh, well, if it's this, I can do that. If it's this, I can do that other thing. And if it's none of the above, then I can do nothing. So it's got, you know, any, any particular, um, like creature or being at that level, whether it's a subatomic particle or an atom or whatever, it then has a limited number of things that it can do in response to the world. And as it becomes more complex, it has a, a greater range of things. So whereas a proton might not be able to choose to do one thing or another, you might be able to say it has a choice. You can either do this or not do it. And it just mechanically makes those kind of pseudo choices throughout its entire you know, hundreds of billions of years long existence, then when you move up and you get to the level of animals, well, now, now they've got seemingly a greater range of free will. They can choose certain things. Well, let's start with like microorganisms, like single celled organisms. If the, if you put some, some food in front of them, they can sense that food through various means and then move towards it. And that in itself might seem pretty mechanical because chances are in that situation, any any of those, any any individual of that species of microorganism will do the same thing. Oh, it smells the food that it knows it's like. It moves towards it and it and it eats it. But there's a tiny bit of of freedom there. There's a tiny bit of I'll just say freedom for movement because even if it's kind of um, you know not much to write home about it can take a slightly different path to get to that food you know it can start with maybe the you know the right side of its form or the left side and it can veer slightly to the right and make a, a little spiral pattern but it's not completely mechanical in the sense that it's just you know every time it's the this this like robotic movement forward when you look at anything that is living there is a um, a quality to to even just movement that suggests life and it's not a, a robotic movement like when you watch tv shows and old kinds of robots they look robotic because they are they are robotic and the more and the more that we can kind of program them to imitate life the more they look like life but think about all of the the information processing that has to have been developed in order to get um, like some of those you know dog robots to actually look kind of like they're almost human and look at the, the state of like androids they they you know they, they there's still a, a gap between actual um like programmed movements and natural uh, spontaneous movements and i think that has to do with the degree of freedom that there is but by virtue of having a a mind um that is controlling them but animals are still extremely limited like that or uh, life forms early life forms like that like that um, amoeba is just pretty much going to do the same thing each time, but there are, there are going to be, it's not going to be as simple as a proton. It's going to be, okay, if you see food, then you move towards it and you eat it. But there might be conditions when you don't, because there are, because even microorganisms have the ability to learn. There might, it might be tricked, right? So it might smell the food and run up against an object or a, a barrier that harms it. So it might try a couple times and then it learns and says, okay, if I smell that, I'm going to avoid it from now on. 
it's not a it's not a totally do this or don't do this programming it's do this but if this happens then do this already that's more complex than something going on in the summit on the subatomic level but then you get to the level of humans and the the free will kind of range of choices pretty much explodes and that's why that's why when you're looking at any kind of animal you won't see a range of artistic styles and uh, achievements you won't see a variety of sciences you won't see um, you know, uh, a wealth of literature or history or, you know, whatever, all of these things that we, uh, that we call human civilization would be impossible for animals with that limited spectrum of possibilities of choices. So the more summing up, I guess the, the more simple something is the less options it has for what it can do. The more complex something is the more options it has, but part of the nature of what those choices will be has to do with um, the information you receive, right? So this comes, this brings us back to choices and the nature of belief, because the more you know, the more you know about the possibilities inherent of the in in the universe, the more possibilities open for us. So it's not like humans are stuck at at one level where here are your possibilities, you know, and you list them off, and that's what you're limited to. Because the more you're aware of those possibilities, the more possibilities open up for you. And you can see this just in, in any individual human life, how this plays out. And it's, uh, it's um, I think everyone experiences it and sees it on some level, even if they haven't put it into words and articulated it. But that's what plays out is this expansion of possibilities. And, uh, well, well, so... Uh, when, when you were saying that, Harrison, I was thinking about, uh, and Adam, maybe you can um, uh, you can add to this a little bit. Uh, I was thinking about the quote from the Bible, be as little children, or be curious as little children. Um, if you recall where that's from, or the exact phrase, that would be great, but if not... I believe I, that was Jesus that said that. Jesus himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the idea being, uh, not to get old Bible, but to... Uh, to say that there is a uh, there is a level of innocence and curiosity that I think um, we benefit from when we look at all this information and when we decide that we're going to allow ourselves to have the questions because I think as as soon as human beings decide that they have the own the, the whole enchilada that they understand everything, that uh, essentially all the possibilities to a person close up. And, and if, we're, if we're made up of information, if we have a, some kind of connection through our minds to uh, a larger uh, mind, a larger universe, a universe filled with information that, that we couldn't even possibly fathom uh in our current state of being uh if unless we can get past the fact of our own ignorance unless we can acknowledge our own ignorance and be more curious and open to the idea that we are ignorant and and what else what else does all of this information imply what what other avenues of thinking of thought of philosophy, of science, of spiritual study, uh, might we 
pursue in order to bring ourselves to this greater level of complexity, as you put it, Harrison? What, what, uh, what parts of our inherent nature that we've been dumbed down about uh, through neo-Darwinism, through the programming of education and, and relatively um, ignorant thinking and, and societal norms, for instance, what barriers uh, do we poke through uh, in order to grow ourselves? But if you don't have the question, you know, just like uh, Parsifal uh, with, with the, uh, the lance um, in our show about panspermia, uh, if, if we don't have that question, if we're not curious, if we, if we can't get over ourselves enough to say, wow, this is, um, and this is really Ken, Ken Peterson's thought too. I think it's what made him such an excellent guest. He was exuberant with the idea that, that things weren't, um, uh, you know, out of the, the Darwinistic materialistic mold of, of thinking. He was exuberant with the idea that, that the world is made up of information and that, and that there is something, some intelligence that resembles God in his mind. Uh, and so this can be an energizing, uh, revitalizing, um, idea and, and pursuit for ourselves, uh, if, if we can get past this, uh, this block, uh, that, that seems to be placed in front of us and just getting back earlier, Corey, to some of your points about choice, it seems to me that, uh, true science has placed right in front of us at this time, uh, the choice, uh, more clear than, than it has been in, in a very long time that, True science is saying, look, all of this points to, we don't know exactly what it points to, but all of this points to the fact that, that we're no accidents, that the universe is no accident. So what, what is it about this, this choice that is so powerful? And, and do we happen to live at an extraordinary time in, on this planet where the choice is so apparent, if, if you're looking at it, uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, yeah, those... Those are all really good questions, and it, you know, the, you talked about the barrier. Like, how do you? Uh, what kind of barrier are are we up against? You know, trying to, to, um, to accept this this different way, this different way of thinking. And this is where you know we we fall back into the religious and like I guess theological problems that you know these things imply. And, and one of the big problems is that, well. Uh, you know, you you've used multi multi trillion dollar um, equipment and sensors and studies over the course of you know however many years in order to arrive at this conclusion. Um, very sophisticated, uh, lots of PhDs, lots of extremely intelligent, brilliant individuals, just geniuses to uh, formulate this um, this new worldview, this system. Right, but it it was also part of our indigenous heritage, probably for the majority of our our uh, existence on this planet. Um, this this worldview, something similar to it, not the exact same, 
uh, but this idea, you know, going all the way back to, you know, ancient shamans and, you know, even St. Paul and, and all these different individuals who they, they would come and they would say, all right, so this is the meaning of life. This is how the, this, you know, life has a purpose. The universe is created. There is a creator. Now you got to do these things to get right with him. Well, they didn't have access to any of that technology. So we need to update our idea of where, um, what information is valuable and what isn't. Because, you know, like you're saying, there's not a dichotomy between science and religion. There's just a, the biggest dichotomy is between truth and lies. So there can be truth and lies in religious systems and within science, too. Um, but we really need to, uh, we really need to start looking at what a lot of those guys were saying mm -hmm. and start thinking like, well, you know, well, we don't have the whole enchilada. So obviously, you know, I think we've talked on the show about the fact that sometimes in order to prove your faith, you have to abandon your faith that, mm -hmm. that like on some level, um, that that's, that's a good and healthy thing to do. And well, you know, we're a pretty faithless uh, civilization at this point and um, you, know, you know there are still individuals who are try who are attempting and to kind of carry out the original intentions of, of scientists which was, you know greater freedom human dignity um, lots of cool new gadgets more knowledge of the universe and you know freedom from some of the tyrannies that have you know historically plagued uh, mankind but along the way almost immediately from the outset is just plagued by lies. All right, so now let's throw the baby out with the bathwater and throw away countless years of traditions and our own human instinct, our, our soul, our minds, our subjectivity, uh, the purpose for existence. Let's just get let's just get rid of all of that. You know, it makes perfect sense. Why not? Let's. All right, so we're going on a trip, honey. Let's just throw the kids out <laughs> the window, and we're going to Disney World. What are we going to do when we get to Disney World? We don't have the kids with us. Like, who cares? We'll let. We'll figure that out when we get there. But it's such a. Um, what we see is that we're not very rational. We're not very intelligent, and um, and the the many things that are good about it are our, our intelligence. Uh, they they can't uh, be left to develop in in a vacuum of of uh, of a whole, more holistic and healthy way of of living in the world and so you know for all of those individuals who for countless years have been saying that science proves god doesn't exist and prove that mankind is just uh, mechanical and there's no reason to even you know think about these things and you're all just uh, machines you know that's um it's understandable because we, you can't blame history, really, for being history. It is what it is. Antiquated beliefs in the, the current antiquated times, you know. Um, but at the same time, there is something about it to me that has always seemed criminally ne negligent uh, when self-serving individuals will take that kind of a position and, and say those kinds of things about and, you know, spread these kinds of ideas. Uh, to children, to, you know, children in high school, um, to the children growing up, to adults, and to really take away the map, the compass uh, of an entire society, and then just set them off and say, well, you're all, it's meaningless. And then expect that nothing is going to happen because, hey, nothing is going to happen. There can't be anything bad about it because you're all just mechanical losers anyways. So we'll just wind you up and let you, and then let you, uh, let you fall. You know, when when all of a sudden you hit a wall that nothing nothing can explain. So um, 
you know, just get off, I'll just get off my soapbox there for a second. But that, that's obviously that there is something about our uh, station in life, where we are at in the universe, that um, that we're we're prey to that kind of uh, that mode of being. Um, that we're we're extremely vulnerable to to lies, and we're extremely vulnerable to self-centered thinking, which is probably the biggest barrier that we have to adopting um, the mode of being, I guess, the other way of of living that would open you up to these kinds of these potentials. These, you know, th this is kind of our that's kind of our fundamental sin, and why I say that we need, you know, that it's. It's a good idea to reevaluate some of these ideas uh, that our ancestors have had. You know, like Saint Paul, the idea of the fall, the idea of the original sin and, and necessary sin that we did, that we have fallen into this sort of prison-like state where we live in a body of death that we are a victim of. Like our in our own deepest inward sense, we can't do what we want to do we are sort of trapped in this in this um this system this machine mm -hmm. and we're kind of and, and in many ways we're powerless against it that there is something that you need to have when i'm not sure what it is but there you need to um, have some connection um with with other people with uh with a a, a bigger something more energetic more intelligent whether it's a group of people or you know something else you need help and you can't do it on your own and it's like that's like your ruby red slippers that's what you've got and i think like you were saying alan that here science is after all these years like oh wait might have got it wrong guys <laughs> we might have got it wrong um you know not saying that all scientists believed that um but that there is uh here there's this billboard all of a sudden and it's really unfortunate that uh, the implications are are really lost on on all of us and on society because of so all of the these these blockades that have been set up, all of these mm -hmm. kinds of thought traps that have been set up, so that just you can't even begin to imagine that it like if it that it even has implications because you're just like ah whatever mm -hmm. yeah and the creationists again. Or oh great, so Yahweh did that. Whatever you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought up the necessary sin part because that that uh, it wasn't in mind when I was thinking about some responses to to some of these ideas that we've been talking about. Because um, the necessary sin thing, just to, we did a couple shows on it, but just to remind people, like from Paul's perspective, um, according to Tim Ashworth's. Um, you know, analysis of Paul's letters, the the fall, like the story of Adam and Eve, is a story better called the story of necessary sin as opposed to original sin, because the idea is basically that the sinful state that humanity is in is necessary in order to learn and in order to grow. Without a fall into that sinful state, you just already know everything, and there's nothing to learn. There's no growth that is possible. There's no... Uh, no possibility for anything meaningful or new to come out of that. Because imagine if you're just born knowing everything with nothing to accomplish, your life would be completely meaningless. It would just be a static, um, like, nothingness. There'd be nothing to it. So there's something about the nature of, of our limitation that is 
necessary and potentially liberating. This relates back to what I was saying about the nature of choice. Um, one way I've kind of formulated it is that the state that we find ourselves in or the state that anything finds themselves in is a state of um, limited options designed for growth. So within the state of within your state with your limited options available, you can do certain things and learn certain things like um, like from the bottom up. So going back to what we we're saying about subatomic particles, they have very limited possibilities, very limited options. Then you have animals who are able to do a bit more. Um, you know, your dog is able to do a bit, uh, a lot more than a proton, and to learn a lot more too. Dogs have dogs and all kinds of pets, for instance, have amazing an amazing capacity to learn certain things and seemingly to to develop some um some qualities that we would even associate with with humanity um when you say you know a person is humane you know broadly speaking there are certain qualities attached to that that you can we can see reflected in animals uh, maybe not chimps you know but um <laughs> but the but we so we, even as humans even though as i was describing it earlier as as extremely complex beings we have extremely um, expanded possibilities from another perspective, we are still extremely limited because if we think back to the talk with John Buchanan and about process philosophy and to with Jim Carpenter's first sight, sight theory, it seems that the nature of consciousness is such that at any given moment, we have the entire universe entering into our mind. Our, our mind is the entire universe essentially, but the vast majority of that is closed off to us. We don't have access to it. We have access to this completely, like, almost infinitesimally small slice of reality. That's the limited nature of what we have that for our own experience and growth. And be because in order to experience and in order to growth, it needs to be limited. Again, just like if we were born with all accomplishments already made and knowing everything, our life would be static. If we had access to everything, we would have nothing to do because we would have no room for action, no room for discovery, no room for growth and, and, um, and change. Everything would be static because it's all there all the time. There's, there's no interaction because everything already is um, and, and is constantly in relationship to everything else in the same static way. There needs to be a limitation in order for there to be dynamism and movement in and life in the universe. So when you look at any given human, I mean, we were talking we're talking about all these barriers to understanding and barriers to a new worldview. Well, another way of looking at it from the other angle is that <clears throat> everyone everyone on the planet, no matter what they believe, has has that worldview that mindset for a specific purpose, and that's what they have to work with. So. This gets back to what I was saying about psi and the nature of, of belief in relation to psi. One of the essential points to first sight theory is, and not just first sight theory, but also like just the, the understanding of subliminal perception and subliminal uh, responses and behaviors, is the importance of implicit values and implicit goals. These are the values and goals that you're not even consciously aware that you have. It might be the implicit goals that your body has, and so your body will do things that you're unaware of for its own reasons that you that you have no idea why it's doing it. But there's something going on, and the so that one of the tricky things about that is that uh, to give a hypothetical example, let's say you're in a psi experiment and you're and you and you think you believe in psi. Well, maybe for some unconscious reason, on some implicit level, you don't, and that's what causes you to to uh, psi miss, you know, to actually not demonstrate a positive psi effect. 
Well, so how do you how do you square that then? It's like, well, how do you change your if you want to presumably? How do you change your implicit values? Well, there's probably a whole you know that's probably a whole other direction we could go into sometime in the future. But for what all of that that I'm saying implies for me is that on some unconscious level, and this could be on a higher level, this could be like this could come from some kind of spiritual level that we that we exist at that we're not aware of. We have basically our own goals and plans for ourselves for ourselves and what we will learn and what we what we will experience and what we will and how we will grow and that um we don't necessarily have total control over that well we don't have total control over that so in in essence on some level our our choices are limited for us whether it's a higher part of ourselves or or something else that kind of like gives the 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 options for for how we're how we're going to be navigating our lives and to tying that into another thing I said, when we, the more we learn the more possibilities we have, maybe, maybe the, either the more we can fulfill that, that implicit goal or the more we can actually change an implicit goal and, and choose one that we think might be more advantageous for us, something that we actually do want because we might want something on some level, you know, well, you know, as a te- as a teenager, you want certain things, and I'm sure if you do psychological tests on the you know subliminal responses, you'll show that teenagers want certain things that they're not going to want 10, 20, 30 years later. Their their value system is going to be is going to change as they grow, and so we might see ourselves, we might see like humanity in its current state, we might see humanity with its current worldview um, that lacks meaning as um, a kind of like primitive like teenager mentality or worldview and if we if it's part of our implicit goals to change ourselves and to 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 grow and and develop in ways that we haven't previously then that requires like growing up right it, it requires looking at a wider range of things in the world and becoming aware of new possibilities to then form a more expansive comprehensive and and coherent worldview about what is going on and what the possibilities are and we think that that's one of the reasons i like process philosophy so much is because even though it's a it's a system it's you know and and who knows it's probably incorrect in numerous ways um but as a as what i consider kind of the the pinnacle of the the the, the western philosophical options for the nature of reality it is pretty um, expansive in the possibilities that it opens up for the nature of reality and what can happen within it. Just to men- briefly mention something, we didn't get a chance, I was planning on it, but I didn't get the chance to ask uh, John Buchanan about it. One of the things he talks about in his paper is that it allows, for instance, for the existence of purely spiritual beings. And that might be controversial even within process philosophy because as John was telling us you know, before we did the show, there are totally atheistic process philosophers um, and totally materialist process philosophers. And then it ranges all the way to guys like Charles Hartshorn and, and John Cobb, who are um, totally um, like spiritual religious process theologians. Um, but the, the, the system that you create for yourself or that you acquire, however, um, can, and I think, well, well, should, if it's your goal, open up your, you know, broaden your horizons, open up your possibilities, what you see about the world to then open up possibilities for yourself. And then one one aspect of that might be what you were 
um, mentioning Corey, like, uh, or at least alluding to like a new, a new method or, or a new source of information on which to kind of guide your life as opposed to just like science and technology, for instance, there's other kinds and other sources of information. And, and that can be like the, the guys you were mentioning, like, like the, the great kind of, um, like religious geniuses and mystics of, of our human heritage. And we can even separate, we can even try to look at them objectively and kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and say, okay, well, that's obviously, you know, in- influenced by the time and place he was living in. Um, like, you know, certain, like when you're reading the letters of Paul and he's talking about the, you know, being raised up to the third heaven and, and seeing certain things. Well, that's part of the worldview of the time. There's, and like, like I, one of the first things I said in this show, chances are the more specific you are about your, about the, any particular belief system, the more, the, the more likely you are to be wrong. Well, there's the, 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 the world probably isn't structured in exactly the way that any of these given mystics described it, like even Ibn Arabi and, and the way he describes the, the levels of the heavens. Well, there might be some, some reality to what he is saying, but we, it would require a kind of a vast project of, of analysis and comparison of all these different systems and of, of whatever we can see and discover to kind of figure out what's, what's there and what's not there. Well, one, one idea that came to mind as you were uh, describing all that was uh, neuroplasticity. So uh, neuroscientists, neurologists have discovered with people who are suffering from Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or, or some form of brain damage, is that when, when people exercise their minds in a certain way, uh, when they meditate, for instance, or, or when they focus on those abilities that they've lost, uh, they have a neuroplastic potential to, to grow their minds, literally, to, uh, to make up for whatever physical uh, deficiencies have been discovered by the doctor, uh, which, which implies quite a lot because if we take this idea of neuroplasticity to a psycho-spiritual plasticity, to the idea that, that the mind can grow out of its, uh, all the harm, all the programs, all the trauma, uh, all the dogma that it's been subject to over a lifetime, which is quite a lot, uh, then it, it suggests the potential to, to grow in ways that uh, can be quite unexpected. Um, you know, get, getting back to first sight theory, I mean, and, and Jung and, and, uh, at his best, and a number of other thinkers, uh, where does intuition come from? Where does uh, where where does certain uh, inspiration come from? Uh, certain creative acts. I mean, these things, at least to, to my rational mind, um, are are novel, are are quite unexpected and inexplicable to me. Uh, so, is there because I believe in uh, neuroplasticity? Because I believe that uh that there's a non-physical reality because i believe that there is a divine or greater or cosmic mind because i believe that there is a 
uh, a hierarchy of creativity and intelligence and, and order in the universe? Is it because I believe those things that I sometimes have flashes uh, in rare instances, you know, granted, of, of, of something that to me is inexplicable? Um, it's at least a question in my mind. And, and occasionally I find in, in a lot of what we read the suggestion of what may possibly be the answer or the reason uh, for, for this uh, larger scope of perception uh, that pops into my noodle uh, when, I, when I least expect it. And, and it's, it's quite lovely. Um, am I saying any of these things with, with certainty? No. Uh, however, uh, I think that the, the openness uh, to, as you were saying earlier, Harrison, you know, the, the, the openness to the possibility is what allows for a greater possibility or probability for, um, for any kind of ability or awareness or perception. Um, and we just keep asking questions. We can, we don't even have to pursue this with any amount of, uh, dead certainty. We can be, you know, like I was saying earlier, we can be curious, like, like children, we can, um, we can apply our, our innocent, sincere questioning to all of these ideas and see what sticks and, and be prepared to revise it later. Uh, but in the meantime, I think there, there are certainly these really valid tracts of inquiry that we can allow ourselves to pursue. Um, and that even, even connecting our minds to the substance of the questions, to the thought processes that these guys like Whitehead uh, and Peterson and, and these other, uh, thinkers have, have presented for us to, to connect our thoughts to theirs, um, is a, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit of a rope. It's a little bit of a helping hand. It's uh it's a connection to that informational substance that they have already followed the path on, that they have already worked their way through to some degree. That we can that we can follow for as long as it makes sense to us until we've decided we've we've you know we don't believe it or we've outgrown it we we've gone along with it as much as it has allowed for our own uh, expansion and expansiveness. <laughs> yeah, those are all really those are really excellent uh, excellent points, and it, it makes me think about I've been reading a book called The Moral. What's it called? Dang, oh, dang it. The uh, America's Revolutionary Mind, and it's all about the the revolution, uh, the American Revolution, and the ideas that were in it. And one of the big ideas is on liberty, and liberty uh, as then was considered as a method. You know, it was a method of living your life. It was predicated that on the fact that you, as an individual, had this faculty, um, re reason. You know, that made you a uh, a sovereign. A citizen, a sovereign individual, that you, your body was your property, and that by extension, people should not be, the governments, others should not be able to violate you, and that you had this, uh, this obligation towards others too, that you should not be violating uh, other individuals and their, their, uh, their sovereign, um, their sovereign self. But this, this faculty of um, the reason was the most important part, right? This is, um, this is where the rubber hits the road because you have to 
look at your motives and you have to look at what you want to do and you have to analyze what you're doing and you have to decide whether or not it is a noble path to pursue. And you have to be very cognizant of who you are and what you're doing and what your aims are and what your motivations are. And yet then, once you, you do that, then you're free to go and explore the universe, right? That's, that's how we, that, that was the dream really of, of um, what a free society would look like as individuals who control themselves and don't violate one another, but that are free to explore themselves and to live out their potential to the best that they possibly can um, within a, you know, a system that was uh, based on all checks and balances and, you know, and then it immediately became corrupted. But at the same time, there is within that, um, you can see uh, this, this dream, that dream of freedom, right? It's uh, it, in the context of what we're discussing here, it's not just a dream. It, it sounds like it's like a promise. It's a promise of, from God that, that humanity has always yearned for is this is this freedom and then also to know that there are things that you are required to do in order to exercise this freedom that there is a requ there are requirements um, spiritual there's a spiritual way a practice that you have to adopt in order to be able to actually be a free individual not just freely walk off a, a cliff to your own you know demise that um, like you're talking about Harrison with the this tiny sliver right that we have of this conscious um, this vast consciousness and this very creative force that you we see evidence of all all around us the sheer abundance of forms and interesting little life forms and you know suns supernova the, everything just this a vast artwork of creativity that we have somewhere in within us a tiny sliver of that right well it seems to me like it would be a worthwhile endeavor to see if you can access more of, of that. That in one lifetime, you know, how much of that brilliance and creativity can you channel onto the planet? I mean, it does. The, to me, that seems like the the idea, the ideal behind being like a child of God, and to treat yourself like you're a child of God is how can I display the this creative aspect of the cosmos in his in his in the unique and subjective a way as I possibly can. You know, that's not asking for too much, <laughs> right? I like, I don't want to be like build Versailles, uh, like, you know, again, but, um, but it seems to me like it's a very interesting idea to, to take to heart is the, is this potential, right? That's, that's what we don't have. We, we don't, we, we might have something like it, but it's very silly, this idea that you can, you know, be anything that you want to be, but it's like, it's not really grounded in reality. And it's, you can be a millionaire. You can be, yeah, it's not, and it's not grounded in, in virtue, I guess. It's not grounded in, um, in, uh, in a creative spirit. It's more or less like, oh, you can yeah, be a millionaire, like you said, or like you want to become a uh, NFL player, like you know, the, just like the kinds of things that you're setting yourself up for failure if you believe in them. But um, can I be more creative? Can I um, can I solve can I solve the problems that I have? 
right? That's a, that's a big one in and of itself. Can I creatively solve my problems to make my life better? And then by extension, make pe- somebody else's life around me better. Like I, I would imagine if, if this is true, if what we're saying, if you have that kind of an intention and we do have that kind of a connection to this divine cosmic mind, that there would be some form of help that you would receive, whether it was in, internally or from without, that, um, that you, would, you wouldn't be left on your own devices if you took a step in that direction, if you put that signal out, if you were the source of that information on this planet, because we, you know, we've, we've been talking about God as like a single self, right? As this single self. But in this um, cosmology that we've been discussing, uh, you know, process philosophy, especially is that, um, that we, you are God, that you are an aspect of God and that how I treat you is how I'm treating God. And then how you're treating me is also, I mean, if if you're asking me to punch you in the face and I punch you in the face, I'm not going to feel bad for punching God in the face, you know, not if you actually asked for me to do it, but, um, but that to, to know that like how you are with other people, right? Like God is, is your witness there. And that, um, yeah, I mean, went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I don't want to punch you, so... But Thank anyhow, <laughs> other than that, uh, I think that we are going to call that a uh, show, and we hope that you enjoyed our discussion on um, some of the implications behind intelligent design, uh, and we hope you have a good, nice weekend. Take care. Bye-bye.